Welcome, everyone, to episode 261 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and this week we're talking about a type of movie we don't get to cover very often, let alone even really exist very often, I think, in the space out there these days. That is the a biblical epic, or maybe less of an epic and more of just a comedy drama in this case. That is The Book of Clarence. We'll have plenty to say about all that in just a few minutes, but first, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott. Uh, I, I'm recovering a little bit. I was telling you that I just uh, had the COVID, the new COVID vaccine and the new, well, not new, but just the same old flu vaccine. The same old flu vaccine. Um, yeah, got them this both. Year, on this Saturday. year's version of the flu vaccine, at least. Yes, got them both on Saturday, um, and that took a toll on me. I think it was more the COVID one that took the toll on me because it felt very similar to when I had other doses of COVID vaccine in the past. Um, so was recovering from that a little bit yesterday, but um, I have now. You know, I was mentioning last week, I think, on the podcast that I'm trying to catch up with 2023 movies and. Uh, in in spite of saying that, I've I've now got two movies into 2024 already. Uh, Is this a 2024 because... movie? I mean, that's a great question, right? It's eligible for Oscars this year. I checked the eligibility list. It is eligible for Oscars. I, I think it counts as a 2024 movie. I don't think there was anywhere that you could see this movie in 2023. If if I'm understanding. Well, apparently you could see it in New York currently. and LA at the very least, but I didn't. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm counting it towards 2024, and I'm also counting Mean Girls towards 2024, which um, I also sure. watched over the weekend. Uh, not, not, not too enthralled with it, but uh, the less said about that, the better, probably. Yeah, this just in: we're not going to be talking about Mean Girls next week on the pod, so we'll, yeah, I mean, well, anyone's fears about that. Who even knows what there is to say about it? Because the only good parts of the movie are really are taken from the original directly. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of much ado about nothing. Well, I can't speak to it cause I haven't seen it. I think yeah. after I saw well, one, when I saw the reviews that all come out, I was like, Ooh, not good. And I know they were mixed. They weren't like entirely negative, but I, the, the vibe I was getting from the reviews was, I don't know if I'm interested in this, which is also frankly the vibe I was getting from the trailer. If I, if I'm being honest about it, and then when I saw your review of it, when you saw it Saturday, I was like, yeah, definitely not going to go see this thing. I don't think maybe I'll watch it on Paramount Plus when it comes out of like Karen wants to watch it or something one night. Yeah, uh, something like something like that. But it's just like, you know, the original is right there. And for I'm not saying people of different generations wouldn't prefer a remake and, and like it to feel more temporally relevant to them. But for me, like it's a film I more or less grew up with and. You know, in spite of what Lindsay Lohan is today, like uh, she was an icon of of movies that I watched when I was a child between Parent Trap and this and, you know, a handful of other movies that she was a part of. And I just, you know, I don't need that updated. I'm not trying to think about, uh, you know, the 2024 yeah. version of Mean Girls necessarily. And, and I don't I mean, you know, not that I'm necessarily in touch with Gen Z and the high school kids of today, but. Uh, I don't necessarily think that Mean Girls is an example of a movie that like hasn't aged well for uh, that generation. Like I feel like that generation, you know, more or less appreciates it in the same way that we do still. So, um, you know, I, I feel like it was a little bit of a cash grab uh, to to do this, and that most of the people who are going out to see it are just people who are already fans of the original, which was a movie that 
didn't really find the audience in its own time, but in, you know, the years since the, the decades since, you know, has, you know, garnered a cult following greater than just about any other film of the, the 2000s. So maybe sort of a victory lap of sorts for Tina Fey and co. Uh, but yeah, as, as a movie, it, it, it's, there's, doesn't have much to offer if you're a fan of the original. I don't know. Is the color? I mean, it's the same deal as the color purple. Is the color sure, purple yeah. a cash grab? I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I did think about that also when when I was watching Mean Girls. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it is. Perhaps it is because you know the name, the color purple, certainly carries weight in the same way that the name Mean Girls does. Maybe Mean Girls is like a little bit more of a cult classic than the. Spielberg yeah. color purple. And by a little mm -hmm. bit, I mean significantly more of a cult classic than yes, Spielberg's version of the color and the, purple. And the novel, of course. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, which I guess Mean Girls was an original original script, so there's no novel there. But yeah, yeah. An, inter an interesting thought experiment, but not one that I'll be visiting personally, I don't think, because I will see if I ever watch this iteration. Uh, which was interesting because you enjoyed, you saw the touring version of the musical and you enjoyed it, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, I I did, and I stand by that. I mean, I just, there there are some things, first of all, there's songs that are in mm. the musical that aren't in the movie, uh, which was a mistake. There's also, you know, the I think the cast is a little bit all over the place. Like, I think some people, a, a couple of people are, are pretty successful, but I think Angowry Rice was honestly all wrong for the role of, of Katie. Um, and cannot sing at the same level uh, as people like uh, Renee Rapp or Ali Cravalho, who plays Janet Janice in the movie and mm -hmm. was the voice of Moana. Um, and it, it kind of stands out, obviously, when she's trying to go toe to toe with them. So um, I, I like seeing the theater production because it was more fleshed out, and also you had you know people with the singing chops. But uh, it didn't translate to the film. It's very fascinating that, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't see the movie, so you could you could probably speak to this better. But I always find it interesting when you get someone for a lead role who, in a musical, who doesn't really have the singing chops, when yeah. that person is not a famous name. Like Angry Rice is really like not a not that big of a deal. You know what I mean? Like she's a good actress, but yeah, a hundred percent. But it's not like she's an A-lister. No. So it's like funny where you, why wouldn't you just get the best person for the role in terms of the singing chops living like standing next to these other people who are going to sing her, you know, just overpower her. But there are whatever. there. Last thing I'll say, there are a couple good cameos. I'll give it that. Well, uh, we'll we'll leave it there. That's our review. Now, I think that's done. I think should we just go on to part yeah. two now? Yeah, Let's wrap cool. it up. Yeah. Oh, right. No, we're talking about the the book of Clarence, as I already mentioned. That's a biblical comedy drama and the sophomore outing of James Samuel in his follow up to two, 2021's Westerner, The Harder They Fall. Returning from that film, Lakeith Stanfield plays the lead this time around of Clarence, a struggling down on his luck, non-believing black man in A.D. 33 Jerusalem during the time of Jesus Christ. Clarence and his friend Elijah, played by fellow The Heart of They Fall cast member R.J. Seiler, gamble alone from a local loan shark, Jedediah the Terrible, played by Eric Kofi Abrefa, on a chariot race against Mary Magdalene, played by Tiana Taylor. Due to the interference of local gypsies, however, Clarence and Elijah crash, losing the race, the potential winnings, 
and most importantly, the principal of their loan. Jedediah gives Clarence 30 days to pay back the money or perish. Clarence and Elijah must figure out a way to assemble that money, but with their reputation as weed salesmen and few other prospects, their luck isn't looking so good. Further complicating things, Clarence just happens to be in love with Jedediah's sister, Verinia, played by Anna Diop, and Clarence's twin brother, Thomas, also Lakeith Stanfield, if you were wondering, is one of the 12 apostles of Christ who looks down on Clarence's behavior and non-belief in the Lord. Scott, I'll stop there and ask simply, did the biblical adventure that James Samuel took us on in the book of Clarence find some profound revelations, or did the experience seem at best uneven and at worst sacrilegious for your tastes? Yeah, I feel like uh, we're doing this a lot recently with uh, coming straight out of the theater and reviewing movies, because yeah. I, I know I've done it recently, you've done it recently as well. Yeah, uh, a couple times. Another, yeah. yeah, another example for me, because I, I literally came straight home, sat down, and we're doing the podcast now, so... Um, you know, you're getting the freshest possible takes. And Scott, you know, we obviously were were big fans. You even more than I yeah. was of James Hamill's debut, The Harder They Fall. Um, and I felt like it really breathed life. It was a real shot in the arm of a sort of dead genre, the Western, um, with what it was able to accomplish. And when we first heard about this movie... You know, to your point at the start of the episode, it was like, oh, this this seems great. This seems like a natural fit, right? Here's another sort of dead genre. Think about the biblical epic. I mean, we don't really get any of these anymore. You had like Ridley Scott trying to do Exodus, Gods and Kings. You had Darren Aronofsky's Noah. But those movies were flops, right? And not well-reviewed. And, uh, you know, were not successful by any sort of metric. And um, so since then, you know, the, these sorts of things have been left, I think, to the the realm of uh, Christian movies and stuff like that, you know, for that audience. Um, and we have yet to see sort of a big auteur take on um, a biblical epic in some time, although I'm sure that Pure Flix has its auteurs that many are familiar with. But um, the Angel Studio auteur, auteurs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. Unfortunately, Scott, I don't think that, I mean, while James Samuel's style certainly, again, is a shot in the arm to the biblical epic, I mean, this isn't like any biblical epic that you will have seen before, certainly. I don't think it all comes together as satisfyingly as uh, The Heart of They Fall, certainly. Uh, I think that um, the movie, from a storytelling perspective and tonal perspective, is kind of all over the place. Um, and it starts off as this sort of buddy comedy, which actually was my sort of favorite section of the movie, I think was, was the beginning with, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Clarence, Lakeith Stanfield and Elijah, RJ Seiler sort of, you know, trying to come up with various schemes to get the money that they need to pay off uh, Jedediah. And it's fun, you know, watching them scheme, as I said, and, you know, First, Clarence tries to become an, uh, uh, he tries to get baptized, right? And there's a funny scene involving him and David Oyelowo playing John the Baptist. And, you know, then he tries to become an apostle, which is, you know, also kind of funny. He has to go on a side quest to free this free slave, slave yeah. played by Omar Sy. Um, and then, you know, finally he decides he's going to be the Messiah. And about at that point, the movie sort of starts taking a, a shift into more of a drama more of a, an action drama, I guess, but there's really not not too much action in it, to, to be fair. Um, I was expecting there to be more action given uh, 
James Sanders. The heart of the call. Last yeah. film, yeah, and also just his visual style, you know, it lends itself very well. He's a, you know, music video director, music producer, composer. He composed the score for this movie. But, um, you know, he he has that very, he has that flash, certainly, and that was something you noticed in The Harder They Fall. I feel like he doesn't necessarily show it off as much as he could have here, and, and the t some of the times when he does just feel a little awkward, like the light bulb above Clarence's head. Uh, feels like, you know, it takes me out of it a little bit at times. And so I think once the movie gets into this more serious territory towards the second half of the movie, I, I started struggling because I got the sense that the movie was trying to say something. But, uh, you know, there's this whole I repeated idea sort of about knowledge versus belief, right? And, and uh, Clarence's, uh, you know, sort of idea that knowledge is what matters not belief and that's sort of what's led him to not believe in god right because he doesn't know anything empirical about about god or about jesus um and so i i kind of thought maybe the movie's going somewhere with that maybe the movie is going somewhere with contemporary depictions of jesus maybe the movie's going somewhere with you know race right again as he did with the heart of they fall he puts black people in a traditionally unfamiliar scenario of you know the old west here it's the you know biblical times quite literally replacing actual figures from the bible who are probably you know middle eastern um yeah no, yeah but not notably women. uh not benedict cumberbatch <laughs> yes yeah um middle eastern men and women um the, with with african-american with an all african-american cast um and but I, I just don't think it really goes anywhere with with one of those with any of those avenues. And by the end of the movie, I think I kind of just was like, OK, well, basically, this was just, you know, um, the, what if we had the story of, of Jesus, but Jesus was just kind of this nobody weed dealer. Right. Like it's it's a, it's almost a life of Brian style thing. Um, but, you know, that that could work. But I want the movie to, I wanted the movie to be more of a romp, like The Harder They Fall was, right? The Harder They Fall wasn't trying to be anything other than just sort of a genre exercise. Um, and I, I think I would have liked this movie more had it committed to sort of one lane because it has a lot of ambition and you, you can't accuse James Samuel of not having ambition. But um, when all is said and done, it's just very uneven. And I think most people are going to come away feeling like, oh, I liked this one part of the movie, but this other part wasn't as, you know, gripping to me, uh, which I think, again, just speaks to the lack of cohesiveness. So, you know, it wasn't a boring movie or anything like that, but um, I would say it's a, it's a fairly uh, inauspicious start to 2024 in, in movies. I don't think I'll be remembering this one for much longer beyond, uh, you know, the next couple of months. Yeah, I was I'll be honest, I was pretty puzzled by this film leaving it. It has this three act structure, which I know is a visual riff on Cecil, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments or and whatnot. So but but those three acts, they feel like three different kinds of genre exercises almost to your point. One's a bit of a buddy comedy. Um, you know, another part is this much more dramatic, serious part, and then you know, the, the first 
and then one act is like a little bit of like an action actioner like or different parts of it are like there's the chariot race which is you know the opening scene in the movie I don't know if it's technically the opening scene in the movie. I can't really remember if it's the actual first scene. Of the yeah, movie, it is. But one of, one of the first scenes in the movie is this chariot race that I thought was like pretty, pretty well shot, pretty well made. Middle of the second act or or late in the first act, there's the big fight between Barabbas, who's this gladiator that is unkillable. Um, there's a lot of references to other biblical lore throughout these movies, Barabbas being one of them. There's you know, two of Jedediah's henchmen are named Samson and what's the other there? I can't I'm forgetting the other one's name right now. Oh, I think bi- I just totally missed that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Two of Jedediah's people are named like Samson and, and somebody else. Oh, oh, like a uh, Goliath. I think Goliath and oh, Samson okay. are like his two, like henchmen. I think I could be, I, maybe I'm misremembering that, but I think that's, I think that's true. And the, but like, there's uh there's all these references. There's, there's action component that like they used the sparks of the big set pieces that they, that he made in the harder they fall. Like there's two or three just outstanding set pieces in the harder they fall. I mean, especially the last one that this big, the big climactic battle at the, you know, the, almost the estate of the town or whatever of the, I'm, I don't remember the name of the character, but was Idris Elba's character. And I wanted more of that in this movie because he's so good at it. To your point, I mean, you were saying it too. And it was very interesting that the film very much did not feel like not that they had nothing to say, because I think that the inherent nature of race flipping some of these roles is going to lead you to reflect and think on those things and think about what that means and what that's like and what that is. But it felt like it was more it was more true to that genre exercise, like you were saying. And then the pivot in the third act to something a little bit more serious and to your point, definitely the last couple scenes in the movie make you think that the film has definitely wants to be saying something. I have I did not find that the film was scrutable enough for me to discern what those things are. Yeah. And I, not just to spoil it at the end of the movie a little bit here. So if you don't want this and you're still listening to this conversation, I guess fast forward 30 seconds or or turn it off. But like I just find it weird that like he's being raised from the dead at the end of the movie and i don't really know what that means in the context of like what the film is trying to say at all um so i i'm ha- i was having a really hard time with like the third act and there's i think there's some like incredible gags like i think the benedict cumberbatch thing is hilarious in this movie i thought james mcavoy's pontius pilot was really funny too like i thought those those i was a little skeptical at first thought those things really worked but then there's like these ah. they're Oh, good. Well, I, just going off the Benedict Cumberbatch thing, I thought that there was um, a better chance for a better sort of punchline ending, which basically was just that. That I'm trying to think of how to how to describe it, but basically, when they're all being crucified there at the end, and they're like drawing Benedict Cumberbatch or whatever, it's like. Well, this is the this image of Jesus is what got carried over, but the actual person who was Jesus is Clarence, right? Is is Lakeith Stanfield's character? Um, I thought that would have been kind of a funny ending to be like, oh wait, you know, actually this guy, Lakeith Stanfield, the black guy, is the one who did all of the the stuff, you know, that Jesus is said to have done, but 
you know, there was confusion at the cross or whatever. And so now this this image of this white guy, Benedict Cumberbatch, is what has endured as the image of Jesus, you know, in popular culture or whatever. Um, but it doesn't really go down that route. It, it's kind of like that. Yeah, but like you said, not fully committed. But also that's just like not the construction of the film at all because like no. Keith Stanfield's not Jesus in this movie. He's no. he's Clarence and Jesus is but he he's starts by to, Nicholas Pinnock. But he starts to resemble jesus by the end because you know he performs a miracle he makes a sacrifice well so that's the other, somebody I mean, that's else the, yeah that's the other part is that like he's walking on water in the scene like where like i don't i just don't get that at all and i have yet to figure out exactly what that means for me part of that's like needing time maybe to sit with the movie and and figure it out and reflect on it and maybe there is something deeper there but my initial reaction you know, 24 hours after seeing the movie is that it, it just goes this direction in the third act that makes the whole like endeavor just feel like a little bit uneven, uh, maybe even more than a little bit, like quite, quite uneven ultimately, because there are certainly really good components of it. I'm so curious. Uh, this was sort of my, my main thought when I was thinking about what to even say about this movie. I'm, I'm so curious what James Samuel uh, and like Keith Stanfield's like relationship with like Christianity and religion is like I'm so fast like I'm so curious. Um, yeah, because you could certainly like interpret this as being like a pretty affirming film in the end about like Christianity because sure. as you say like Lakeith Stanfield Clarence is converted by the end right like he he goes from being a hardline atheist to like no I I felt God I know God like I'm yeah. going to get get crucified just to protect this the you know the person i know to be the real jesus yeah and even yeah like you say even the, the final scene jesus himself you know comes into the tomb and raises clarence but i don't know i just feel like that can't be the message that the movie is trying to leave us with like that the the bible is is true and god is real and all I, like I, I don't know i just feel like that can't be what they were going for with this maybe i don't that's the thing i'm not i'm not 100 percent sure either it makes it i mean it makes for an interesting thing to think about is, is what i will say i'm just not sure it all comes together but the overarching thing that i leave the movie with is all of that promise and all of that craft and skill that i think was evident in the harder they fall it's still here i i think that there's so many different components of the film that really do hum and work together there's some weird choices. I still, yeah, like the, the the whole like surrealist light bulb thing and, you know, smoking the, is it like hookah or whatever they smoke and then like yeah. float into the air. Like th that's like a weird choice ultimately in my mind. And and you didn't really see that kind of vibe at all in The Heart of They Fall. And it's maybe it's a little strange to be in this movie. But it, there besides that, like most of the other choices in this movie stylistically really work for me. and. Yeah, again, the whole thing doesn't really come together, but it feels like such an interesting swing. And you're right, like picking this genre sort of like the Westerner and in some ways, like very related to the Western, right? Like it's more historical, but it's usually set in deserty vibes like you, you have very similar vibes in those two settings. I'm very curious what he's interested in, in doing next. And I think it's clear that there's still a lot of promise. This didn't fully come together the way that I'd hoping I, the way that I'd hoped for. Um, and he, I mean, he was the writer for this film, not to mention the other roles that you're mentioned, like the, um, you know, being the 
the person who scored the music, the person who produced the soundtrack for this film, which includes some like crazy nine, 10 minute tracks of like Jay-Z and other people. I mean, not surprised that he can get Jay-Z because he's Jay-Z's music video guy, but it's just like kind of yeah. just the craziest music stunts being pulled in this movie yeah. too, like, which we haven't really talked about yet, but it, it's all, it's yeah, all but, there still. It's just a matter of, can he get it together in a, in a way that realizes the same, uh, the same acclaim for me, at least with the harder they fall. We, yeah. Weird placement of original songs in this movie, just like <laughs> some, some strange original songs that feel like, you know, they they didn't need to go that hard basically was kind of the the sure. reaction i had in the moment especially towards the end like with this like deeply emotional like song that is kind of like this very soulful know, r&b song right yeah yeah uh, over you know overscoring the the end of the movie um yeah so, yeah it's just some strange choices made i mean the dialogue too like it veers between being like very authentic to the biblical time period and being like, you know, all very contemporary and slang heavy, like, it, you know, the, he doesn't commit to one or the other. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, the fact that like you have a soundtrack for a biblical epic that includes Lil Wayne, Jay-Z, D'Angelo, Kid Cudi, Kodak Black, Doja Cat. It's just like, well, like I'm not opposed to that idea. No, sure. It's just like sure. the execution of it is weird. And I think that, and that sort of fits the tone of the whole film, right? Because there's these moments where the film is being very modern too, right? It's not just the music that you hear that you're hearing. Like the film itself is is oscillating between a couple different tones at times, and not that it's being self referential or like cognizant of the time period in which it's being made versus the time period which is being set in, but there's like some hilarious gags in this movie that are like very referential to modernity, right? Like not, you know, AD 30, 31 or 33 or whatever it is uh, in, in Jerusalem. And I, and that, I mean, that works. It's effective. It's funny, but it's also at the same time a choice and it works in the moment, but like at the macro level, maybe it doesn't come together for one. Of, I mean, that's one of the, it's very interesting. I don't know. And I mean, uh, it's it's interesting. I, I wasn't disappointed in the sense that like, okay, he's a filmmaker. Like he's a real filmmaker, but he probably needs a little help with his direction on the writing side of things. Cause clearly the harder they fall really worked, but he felt very scattered and, to and tonally genre wise in this. And maybe that doesn't matter to him, but I do think that he's clearly got the skill to to put the pieces together but the pieces just weren't quite as good almost this time yeah i think i, I agree with that on the whole his ambition just kind of got away from him on this one yeah but i, I look i kind of respect the hell out of it for what it tried to do and if this revives the biblical epic which it's not i mean i can't imagine that it will the heart of they fall didn't really revive the western genre either i guess that'd be interesting especially because this one like we've already mentioned is doing something totally different and not that the biblical epic is boring but the reason that it's dead is because it's so rote in a lot of ways right like you like you can only tell so many stories within the construction of the genre until you start to break out of the you know the stereotypical constructions of said genre right so and i mean again the younger generations people 
aren't interested in biblical epics the way that they would have been back you, in the day. You don't think the look, you don't think people are standing on the tables writing saying, Give us Ben Hur too. Every, everybody's being that. raised heathen nowadays. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's the real problem with it. Ben, ben Hur returns. Come on, we got that's that's gotta be in the works. Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the cast. Let's talk about Lakeith Stanfield. He had a supporting role in The Harder They Fall. One of my favorite roles, like one of my favorite members of the cast in, the, in that film. He has one scene in the train robbery uh, or the, I guess, jailbreak type scene where he's just uh, unbelievable, in my opinion. He gets the spotlight fully in this film. Not just that, he plays two different roles. He plays his, his twin brother. He plays Clarence and, his, and Clarence's twin brother, Thomas, who's one of the apostles of, of Christ. And it's it, Lakeith's been on a bit of an odyssey recently. I feel like if I'm being honest, like the last thing that we sort of saw him in of real merit, uh, I'm ignoring the haunted mansion very intentionally here, but was the harder they fall back in 2021. And before that it was Judas and the black Messiah. And before that he was in uncut gems. Like he, he had this run of pretty, pretty impressive movie outings and then hit haunted mansion and this and, and sort of slowed down his production. Maybe part of that was Atlanta finishing up because he was in that television show in a, in a main role. And that finished up in 2022. But I feel like I've been missing Lakeith Stanfield, especially with, with his 2021 year with Judas and the Black Messiah and the harder they fall with two really, really strong performances from him. Do you feel like he's back here in this film? Like, does he really deliver on this role? Or do you think that? We're still waiting to see what Lakeith is capable of, like sort of post his big 2021. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe we're still waiting. He doesn't have anything to prove to me, certainly, because sure. I think he's a movie star. I think he's, you know, I, I've enjoyed him in every single he's performance got that he's given. Yeah, yeah. And, and that includes this movie, even though, you know, I didn't didn't love the movie as a whole. I, I do think he's the strongest performance by a long shot. I mean, I, another complaint that I, I have about the movie is that it doesn't use the supporting cast nearly as well as the harder they fall did. Um, where it feels like just a lot of glorified that. cameos in this, yeah. in this movie, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Lakeith Stanfield, you know, he, he plays the dual role. I think he's successful. He has charisma, you know, he has this sort of, deadpan quality particularly in the early scenes that i think it results in some effective comedy at times but i think he you know can sell the transition from you know this guy who is just trying to be a charlatan basically and and uh you know get the money to pay off jedediah to somebody who actually has a you know significant shift in their character and, uh, you know, has the money in hand there to pay Jedediah off, but uses it instead to, to free all of the slaves. Um, so I think he, he's able to, to sell that more or less, even when I don't know if the movie is fully making me believe in it. I think his performance um, goes as far as it can. And um, he didn't necessarily succeed in making me feel anything very deeply for the character when all was said and done. But uh, I think that's more of the movie's fault and the script's fault than, than it is his performance. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. I, I honestly feel pretty similar to what you're describing. I do think that this is not quite the level of performance that we've gotten from him. And I mean, frankly, like two of the best performances of that year. And 
playing Bill O'Neill and then Cherokee Bill, two different bills in 2021. But nevertheless, like I like I do think you see that star power that you're talking about, that that star power that he has, that charisma that he wields on the screen. And it's nice to see him in the lead role, being able to completely flex that because he wasn't that in Judah or he wasn't that in the heart of they fall. He was like ostensibly the lead in Judas, but he's just getting I mean, Daniel Kaluuya is so is so big in that movie that he just sort of blows everyone off the screen almost when he's in his big scene. So you have Lakeith there in, in ostensibly the main role, but he's getting he's having to contend with this big performance from Daniel Kaluuya at the same time. So it's a bit of a, a contest here. I'll be honest, I don't think much like many people in the cast really stand up to him in this film in terms of ability, in terms of performance. And he obviously benefits that from that comparatively. But I also think one element to exactly what you were describing in the heart of they fall is that that cast just like really, really just elevates each other constantly in that movie. Like every scene, I mean, Jonathan majors, um, RJ Seiler, Danielle Deadweiler, Zazie Beats, like they Idris Elba, like there's just Lakeith, like like everyone is just sort of like they're all just working with each other there, and it ladders up to something that's, I mean, still that's like one of my favorite movies from that year. And in a year where there's just it's just full of great great films, 2021 was a great year, and you don't get that in this. Like I enjoy RJ Seiler, I enjoyed Omar Sy, but they didn't do they didn't create something for me that felt special in the cast and. Lakeith does a good job, and and to your point, he sort of carries the movie on his shoulders for a large portion of the film, but it doesn't quite get to where I wanted it to be or where my expectations were coming in, just because of the you know the magnitude of the performance of the heart of the, in the heart of they fall. Yeah, I, I definitely wanted more from R.J. Seiler in particular because I've been a big fan of him in every single thing that I've seen him in, and. Uh, I think he's he's done this sidekick role before, and uh, I, mean, I don't, he did I mean, it in the heart of they fall. I mean, he did it in the heart of they fall. He did it yeah. in me and Earl and the dying girl. He did it in Power Rangers, and sure. uh, you know he he I I was kind of when I saw that that was going to be his role, I was a little dejected because last year he gave I think one of the really you know underrated performances in the movie Emergency where he did have more of a lead role, and so I was hoping that this you know would continue sort of his step towards um being a a leading man possibly but uh it it doesn't do that and this is you know even one of his weaker sidekick roles because he kind of disappears towards the third act of the movie and uh doesn't get to be as funny i think as as he can be as he's shown that he can be um and so i was disappointed with his part in particular yeah omar sai is just kind of there to be the the big brute character, um, you know, James McAvoy is in a couple scenes in the movie as Pontius it's, it's Pilate. A, it's a cameo. I mean, it's funny. Yeah. I think I think he's David Oyelowo is a cameo. J- yeah. James McAvoy, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, obviously, who we've mentioned. Which Michael I Michael Ward plays Judas Iscariot. Michael Ward, right? Yeah. yeah who, Alfrey Woodard's in one scene. Yep. Marianne Jean Baptiste plays uh, Clarence's mother. Yeah, I thought um, Anna Diop was like kind of just flat for me. Just Tiana whatever. Taylor, who you mentioned, yeah. plays Two Mary scenes. Magdalene. Yeah, She's nobody, in a nobody race at the beginning, and then the, the stoning scene at, towards you know two thirds of the way through the movie. 
Yeah. Nobody. Omar size like that. I mean, I guess this was where I'll pivot is like of the supporting cast. Like, who do you point to? Because for me, I think it's Omar yeah. Sai. Like, I like Omar Sai a lot. I think the Brabus character is one of the few that I think you really get a lot of. Like, honestly, I think that you end up learning and, and relating more to Barabbas than you do to Elijah, who's like ostensibly the, like the second lead or the, you know, the the sidekick type character. Like you were saying, that's RJ Siler's character in the film. But that character is like, I mean, you, there's nothing. There's just nothing happening with that character in the whole movie. Right. Am I like going? Am I just forgetting something obvious? Like, it just feels like no. nothing is happening, like barely a character with a, with its own, like with his own thought in the entire film. It's very, very yeah, confusing. I mean, no, I mean, there's like the scene where he is kind of the one who steps in for the stoning, right? Like to rescue Mary Magdalene from the stoning. But like, they don't go anywhere with that. Yeah, not at all. And that's one thing where with Omar Sy, at least, like you get this, what feels like a full arc for him, right? Like he starts off as this gladiator slave who's fighting because if he doesn't, he's going to die. And he gets freed goes on this journey with Clarence and then at the end like manages to escape and frankly has a great bit of like you got the wrong heel like that's like a, a really funny moment in the film for me when he's getting spears thrown at him and there's this you know maybe one of the more emotional moments of the film where you see him getting just sort of being gunned down with these spear throws from I'm um, I think is that I forget which actor that is Tom Glenn I think it's Tom Glenn Carney who plays yeah. Decimus and you know, he's throwing the spears at him and he's looks like he's going to die. And that's, and that was honestly quite sad in the film for me. That was like one of the saddest points of the film for me. But then there's the bit where he's unkillable unless you get his left heel, not his right heel. And so like, that's a good bit. And that's a good completion of his arc. You do see him briefly at the end of the film as well, when he considers sort of stepping in and trying to free Clarence from the crucifixion. But yeah, I, I liked Omar Sy quite a bit. I'm a big fan of him in Lupin, which is the French Netflix show where he plays the the thief, the gentleman thief, Lupin. But uh, it was good to see him, or I should say, and also maybe even a bigger fan of him in the French film, The un, is it, uh, the Intouchables? The Intouchables. Intouchables, yeah. Yes, The Intouchables, which is a French film that then, I forget the English version with Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston, what the name of the film was. But they the made upside the upside. Yeah, they made a remake of it. Not as good as the original French version, which Omar Sy is very good in. And I thought he was good here. He was probably the person in the supporting cast that I liked the most. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, he's he's the one that there's anything about the character whatsoever that resonates. I mean, that scene you're mentioning, the spear throwing scene and everyone sort of going crazy when he is able to to get up despite being, you know, impaled multiple times by these spears. Um, there's something there in his whole, you know, the fist, the we yeah. are about to die, salute you. That kind of comes back around in the end. And, you know, mm -hmm. it works mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, so, yeah, if you got to give the flowers to somebody, it's probably him. But as you said, it's it's nothing more than glorified cameos for the most part. Yeah. And then with that, I guess it's worth talking about the film's different parts, because as we mentioned in the overview, it really does feel like two or three different kinds of movies. There's an action element where there's a couple more action focused scenes. There's the buddy, the buddy comedy type element of how are we going to get this money back? How are we going to make whatever 30,000 shekels or whatever they are? It's not that many. However many shekels they owe Jedediah 
And then there's the, you know, the pivot towards drama in the final act of the movie. Scott, you already mentioned that the buddy comedy element was maybe your favorite part. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. And are there any elements of the other parts of the movies that you did appreciate or you particularly thought didn't work? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it really was sort of in that first half of the movie and, you know, in particular, sort of the first 30, 40 minutes that I was liking what the movie was doing again. It was taking a more comedic spin on things. Um, it was being kind of irreverent. And, you know, the the idea of these guys just sort of as schemers was fun. Um, but once it, you know, turns into this sort of treatise on faith, and like, oh, you know, uh, Clarence is being converted. And also there's the the ro romantic subplot, which we barely mentioned with Anna Diop's character that just yeah. falls completely flat, I think. But, um, but the, you know, there's that. And then, you know, by the time we got to that third act and he's doing like The Last Supper, you know, just kind of so he can do a cool freeze frame of like everyone about to fight at the last supper like basically do sort of a black version of the last supper um painting i'm like what you know I, i'm just confused I'm like what what are what exactly are we doing here um and I, I you know i think unfortunately that at times too like the the different parts when they when they bleed into each other it it you know it makes it even worse like when you know, Benedict Cumberbatch's character seems like it, it kind of worked for you. I, I don't know. I was a little confused by it. And especially at the end when they're on the, the crosses, when they're being crucified and, you know, all of a sudden he's there and, you know, we start introducing humor into this situation when it seems like the movie is not, you know, it is wanting this to be a very serious emotional moment i mean you know everyone is there weeping as clarence is you know been brutally beaten and is on the verge of death um you don't get the humor in that sacrifice yeah i know right um and it's like it's almost like it you know i, I hate to be this harsh but it's almost like a marvel movie it's like we can't even Oof. we can't just sit we can't what? just sit there with that moment we have to just like pan over and we have this random side character who's you know doing gags doing bits and that didn't work for me at all um i wish the movie had committed more towards that tone to that tone that it had in you know the first part because if it's not ultimately interested in saying something profound or serious why not just make a romp right again why not just do what you did with the harder they fall and just make a, a biblical epic that has this fun spin on it that all the characters are african-american yeah i i think the benedict cumberbatch thing works for me because i think there's this like inherent with the whole race flipping of the roles and you see this, I think, as well to an extent in The Heart of They Fall, although it's implemented in a different way. The question in your mind is like, obviously, when you see all these black people in Jerusalem, you're thinking like, well, this is not how this is normally portrayed. And to then take it a step further and like literally put the person who looks like the typical portrayal of Jesus Christ, if you walk into like a church and look at a big portrait or mural on the wall, like this is kind of the look that you know, more or less the look you're going to see in that mural. 
I think that that really works as a completion of that satire of, of it. So for me, like the whole thing where he, they're like cleaning him and, and giving him like a spa day basically at Jedediah's place or whatnot. And then you see him like dancing down the street, like giving out silver I mean, coins or whatever. Funny, but... Yeah. I do hear what you're saying when it comes back and he's like up there on the cross, like next to Clarence. And I think that this is maybe tied in as well to what you were saying at the beginning of the conversation, where if they're trying to do the whole um, crucifixion like image, very similar to how they do the last supper image as well, then it, then it does work. And they do. I mean, I do think they're ultimately doing something like that, but then to have him like complaining, like it, to me, it's like the better part of that joke is the first part, not necessarily the second. But I also can kind of understand the second aspect as well. To your point about like you can't just have it be brutal in this moment. I think maybe that said, like it's pretty brutal to watch someone's hands and feet get nailed into a piece of wood. And I think that the levity that that humor might provide isn't so great that it's detract. Like for me, that it's that it's sort of detracting from that like really awful feeling that you had you know, a couple minutes before of watching someone like literally get nailed to a, to a cross of wood. And that's like, I think that's like a visually, like that is a very difficult thing to watch. Like that's a very upsetting image, I think. And it doesn't feel so out of place in the movie because of what they've done, you know, several minutes before. But I do also see what you're saying around. What if they just like made us think about this guy getting crucified and what that actually physically looks like. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, again, taking this idea that in the end, it's kind of very affirming of Christianity. It's almost like they want to say, hey, you know, maybe the the Christ story and the, the story of the Bible and everything would be a little bit easier for people to appreciate and understand if the protagonist was not, you know, a flaw some flawless person, right, who never, you know, made a mistake in their life and was actually a weed dealer who's kind of a, a nobody and, yeah. you know, bumbles his way into doing a miracle and being the sacrifice. But then, you know, it gets to the end and it has to reckon with the fact that, well, the end of this story is like a crucifixion, right? And, you know, what do you do with that? If, if your goal is to try and get people to appreciate this, this story, you have to emphasize the brutality of that because that's, that's the point. Um, so it just, it's, it's confusing. Yeah. I mean, to me, the confusing, the, the more confusing elements to me are the fact that this guy, it does walk on water that he is resurrected. That's the, that's the confusing part to me. Cause it's like, there is a life of Brian. I mean, you mentioned it earlier and I think it's impossible if you've seen that movie, not to think about that because that is, you know, granted a, a you know, a satire about a man who's confused, yeah. confused for being the Messiah. And in, to an extent, that is what is happening to Clarence in the third act of the film. To an extent, it's like not exactly 100% the same. But that's the part that I'm still trying to fit. Like, I'm still trying to, what is it? I don't understand the last, like some of the elements of the last piece. And the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch is up on the cross next to him is like not what's, not what's not troubling me is like too like heavy of a word. But like, that's not what, what I'm getting hung up on in the third act of the movie I for me just because I'm you know may, maybe 
once I figure out the other stuff, then I'll be like, well, why didn't they just let me sit here and watch this man die or whatever? But I I guess I'm just more worried with the other stuff right now. I'm, yeah, I, I'm not I wouldn't say I'm hung up on that element of it, but it is something else that just like, you know, sure. Took me out of it for me. Just to go back to the original question around parts of the movie that I enjoyed the buddy buddy comedy element of it worked for me. I really liked the action elements. I think I mentioned this at the beginning. I think the chariot race at the beginning is pretty frenetic. It's pretty, it's pretty high octane. And for me, I know this will segue us into a favorite scene or moment, and I'll just go ahead and go first. My favorite scene in the movie is actually the fight that he has with Barabbas. Like, I think yeah. the production design, the camera techniques, the sound design and editing within that scene, and the physicality of the Omar Sai performance up against Lakeith Stanfield, like all those things come together really nicely in that scene for me. And the stuff where he gets absolutely thwanged on the head um, with, I don't know if it was like a, st- I can't remember exactly what it was. If it was like a club or, or the flat side of the sword or whatever, or if it's just his hand and his like head is ringing and rattling and the camera rattles too. And there's the ringing and the sound and the sound reduction from, you know, almost like the concussive force that's, that's met. Like that's the kind of filmmaking that is clear that Samuel is capable of. And that's part of the stuff that I just like love to see the most in the movie. And that worked the best for me. So that's my favorite scene or moment from the book of Clarence. Scott, would you like to share yours? Yeah. I mean, I think the baptism scene is pretty fun as well yeah, with uh, David Oyelowo yeah. as John the Baptist. Um, you know, just this is, this is again in the very beginning when Clarence can barely even muster up any sort of, you know, conviction as he is trying to claim that he, is converted and you know he's he believes in god now and everything and john the baptist is seeing right through him and slapping him around and you know holding him under the water like i mean that was the best part the best part that he's around like, him yeah yeah and um, and elijah's and like i you can you you just you don't you've washed him you've washed him. yeah you've washed, you've washed him, him yeah. yeah um so yeah i mean again i i enjoyed that scene i thought there were some fun moments early in the movie yeah, good stuff. All right, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving the Book of Clarence? I'm giving it a 5.9. Um, ultimately not a very successful film. For me, it has its moments, especially in the beginning. I do like Lakeith Stanfield's performance, but it feels like a big missed opportunity. Yeah, I'm a little higher. I'm a little bit more positive than that, but not not so out of the range of, of that either. 6.5 for me. Definitely... You mentioned it at the outs, uh, sort of towards the beginning, but probably not a film that I'm going to remember at the end of the year. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll be wrong about that. It is probably unique in the sense that we're not going to probably cover another biblical epic on the podcast this year. Unless you count Dune Part 2 as a biblical epic, which you <laughs> could make an argument for that, I think. <laughs> There's certainly some religious aspects of that film, which I am extremely excited to discuss in less than two months. As long as it doesn't get delayed again. Fade Ralph as the devil. Is that what we're about to uh, to learn? I'm not so sure it's really about that. I mean, I haven't decided to go. I, I was mainly joking. Biblically <laughs> deep. But I yeah. I mean, you know, Paul Atreides is the Messiah. It, he is a cross figure, yeah. You should not mistake what that means. Um, that there's not some religious element to it. Now, whether Fade Ralph uh, or... Baron Harkonnen or, you know, the emperor are, you know, Lucifer figures 
I that I I don't really have too many thoughts on, but the yeah. the jihad of the Freeman is certainly a real thing. Christ like figure, maybe I I think he's more of a Muhammad figure actually, um, no. not less so Christianity, more so Islam. But look, that's a nice little taste of what we can talk about at the in the first week of March, um, where I will my my eyes and brain may have been melted by uh 70 millimeter imax it's not it's digital it's not 70 millimeter digital imax for uh true imax format at, at lincoln square so i'm looking forward to that and that's been our review of the book of clarence i'm glad we could wrap up by talking about <laughs> dune part two at the end that's really Somehow. wonderful uh we're gonna take a short break when we come back we'll be talking about the guild awards nominations that came out this past week and the winners at this past weekend's critics choice awards so stay tuned for that we'll be right back Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, a lot of awards action. We talked about the Globes last week and coming right out of the Globes. We had all the Guild Awards. So not all, I should say, certain Guild Awards, most of them, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the Directors Guild Awards, and the Producers Guild Awards all released their nominations this past week. And we do have winners from the Critics' Choice Awards as well to talk about. But let's start with the SAG Awards. I think this was one of those in, in, in our Golden Globes conversation where we were really interested to see what the nominees would be, specifically in the acting ensemble, but in the other categories as well, to see how things shook out going down from the ostensibly 12 people in a category for lead actor and lead actress at the Golden Globes and see how that got narrowed down into the five, in this case, uh, nominees that would get the that could that will be in contention and be in the conversation and, and get a better glimpse of for before heading into Oscar nominations, which I believe voting has begun for that, but has not yet closed, if I remember correctly. But the interesting things to note from the SAG Award nominees for those uh, lead actor, lead actress categories, A, uh, no Leonardo DiCaprio in, lead, in best lead actor. Uh, interesting. I was a little surprised by that. Maybe Coleman Domingo being the winner there for his performance and rust and getting in the other four nominees, maybe less surprising Bradley Cooper, Paul Giamatti, Killian Murphy and Jeffrey Wright completing the category. So yeah, no Leo Andrew Scott was probably on the outside looking in, but that's another person who notably was left out. Any re other reactions to the lead actor category at the SAGs? No, you know, I kind of thought that um, we, we talked a little bit about the fifth spot and I had, you know, suggested that it would probably be Leonardo DiCaprio, but yeah. maybe this suggests that it's it's not going to be. I mean, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon is a historical drama, certainly, but uh, they love playing, you know, real re people. Real people, yeah, sure. Wrestling. I mean, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a real guy, and Killers, but of not the, the Flower same Moon, way that yes, that, not a public figure like that. Bayard Rustin know, is. Right? Bayard Rustin is. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I think. You know, it may end up being Coleman Domingo. And honestly, that's fine with me because Coleman Domingo is a fine actor. I haven't seen uh, Rustin yet, but it would be cool to see him get a nomination. I mean, we both know that this, he's not going to win, but 
get a nomination yeah. over, you know, Leo, who's who's obviously had his day many times. Yeah, I think I agree. <laughs> I, I also think it's still totally possible that Leo gets in. I mean, when you expand yeah. beyond the Screen Actors Guild and into the rest of the Academy as these nominations roll out, things can things can look a little bit different. But it was certainly interesting to see him get left out. On the other side, in the lead actress category, the nominees were Annette Bening, Lily Gladstone, Carrie Mulligan, Margot Robbie, and Emma Stone. Maybe Annette Bening being the major surprise here, but there there were probably more people to choose from that were really highly competitive in this category. Notably, no one, no representation from May December in this category. Sandra Huller and Greta Lee were also both left out. So, Scott, thoughts on on these five people, obviously, I'd say three, you know, three, if not four of these people were again expected with maybe Annette Benning being the person who was on the outside looking in, jumping in. But any reactions? Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit surprising not to see Sandra Huller get in there in particular because I still think she's going to be an Oscar. Yeah, yeah, disappointing. I still think she's going to get an Oscar nomination. Um, but, you know, to the point that we're just making, Maybe if it comes down to her and Annette Benning, you know, Annette Benning played real person, public figure, Diana Nyad, uh, you know, that's the type of performance that the Oscars love. Um, even though I think we're both in the camp that Sandra Hilaire was far, far superior in Anatomy of I mean, Annette Benning isn't even the best performance in Nyad. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, there's, there's that too. But I would be disappointed as much as I love Annette Benning if she got in over Sandra Hiller. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I was a little surprised mainly because like you really I really felt like I mean honestly even Kaylee Spanny I thought she'd yeah. have a better chance than Annette Benning, but you know there clearly there's still a lot of respect, understandably so, for someone with the career of Annette Benning and the performance Again, I I do agree that I I mean I assume you're referring to either Jodie Foster, Jody Foster or well um, yeah and um, we're both forgetting his name is right it Re- Siphons. oh god Re-Siphons. it is Siphons. yeah, yeah it's okay. Siphons. yeah but arguably both better performances than her not to put down her performance I thought her no, performance was very good as well yeah. but it is like a real dog eat dog movie in in that sense but. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. This, I'm curious if the if the Oscar voting poll just goes like a little bit more international, so there is room for a Sandra Huller in there, uh, mm-hmm. in that and through through that lens. Or even I know Greta Lee is an American actress, but Greta Lee as well, just given a, a diversity of type of movie that it's in, given the uh, representation in that film. I'd be curious if it just goes a different direction. But again, mostly mostly chalky in the nominations there. And there's a lot of love for Nyad because we talked about Jodie Foster just a second ago. She also gets a nomination in Best Supporting Actress. She received a nomination at, at the Globes as well, so maybe that wasn't a huge surprise. But just to read off the nominees in that category, you have Emily Blunt, you have Danielle Brooks, Penelope Cruz uh, sneaking in there, and then Jodie Foster and I, what I imagine we'd all agree is currently the front runner by quite a large margin, uh, Davine Joy, Ran- Joy Randolph uh, for the holdovers. Scott, any reactions to those five supporting actress nominees? Again, no May, December. Uh, and I think that's probably the the swap there. You don't get Julianne Moore, and instead you get Penelope Cruz. 
Yeah. I mean, I think this category is is done and dusted. As you, you said, I think Davon Joy Randolph is going to take this. Uh, I will say, you know, the only sort of interesting point for me then is Daniel Brooks getting in there. You know, I think the color purple making a little bit of a comeback, certainly at the SAG Awards after getting shut out at the Golden Globes. And I do think after these nominations, you know, that I do think the color purple is going to get some Oscar nominations. I do think it could even earn a Best Picture nomination. Um, I, I do think it's it's kind of on that that comeback trail, and uh, I could see you know nominations certainly below the line. I think it could get some, but also you know Best Picture and maybe a performance or two as well. Yeah, I think we'll talk more about its its Oscar nomination chances in a second. Danielle Brooks was nominated for supporting actress at the Golden Globes. And just to pivot to the supporting actor side of things, I think that where maybe the bigger surprise comes for me is not necessarily in for the color purple, but when you have Sterling K. Brown, another African-American actor for American fiction getting in, I think that was the biggest the surprise on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. When you have um, Willem Dafoe, Robert De Niro, Robert Downey Jr., Ryan Gosling, and then Sterling K. Brown, jumping in there it feels to me that more that american fiction maybe picked up a little bit more steam with obviously jeffrey wright getting the nomination but then also sterling k brown uh it did not get the ensemble which we'll talk about in a second the color purple did but i'm wondering what you're thinking if american fiction is trending upward at all with sterling k brown's nomination maybe um you know maybe it, it takes this nomination i'm not really sure what else is a snub really here um like who, who he's getting charles melton Oh, Charles well, yeah, that yeah. I would be Mark surprised, Ruffalo. I guess. Yeah, I, I would be surprised if Charles Melton did not get nominated or I mean, Mark Ruffalo not getting nominated would be a surprise, too. And, um, you know, it, it, it is it's a point where well, one of them sure. can't get nominated. <laughs> and, yeah. And the other people just because the Globes had six. So they had the freedom to, to do something like that. But I, I guess yeah. that's true. Yeah. Well, it'd be I Gosling be more surprised. I guess, or Defoe. I'd be more surprised if Charles Melton doesn't get nominated. Um, but, you know, yeah. as you say, May, December getting completely shut out here. Maybe American fiction is taking over this sort of indie drama auteur slot from May, December. And like, you know, is going to get those nominations, you know, in these performance categories. And maybe, you know, is going to be looked at for screenplay over, you know, May, December. Yeah, that could be the case. That very well could be the case. And then finally, for our finishing up SAGs here, the ensemble discussion. Um, I mentioned American Fiction not getting the ensemble cast nomination earlier. I, I misspoke. It did receive a nomination for ensemble cast, as did Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and then Color Purple, as you were alluding to just a, a, a few minutes ago. No May, December. Uh, I'm not sure if if there's other ones that really felt like big slubs. I was just highlighting the May, December point there maybe there's other ones here and there that you could mention that like, Oh, it's weird. Like I mean, no, the holdovers, like, doesn't the holdovers really have and an poor things, yeah. like, the holdovers doesn't have an ensemble beyond it's like core three and poor things. I guess like, I mean, I would say poor things definitely has an ensemble is the thing. So it feels weird to me that it's not in there. Like I found that really surprising and the biggest shock. Does it have the extent of the ensemble that, the color purple or American fiction has maybe not, but 
it has some incredible performances and even some like pretty good, like, you know, borderline cameos from people like Christopher Abbott and things like that in the film. So I found that to be an interesting snub, especially given its trajectory and other parts of the race dimension. But what did you think of the, of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it is hard to read into these things sometimes because the ensemble, you know, is a limiting factor, right? Like a movie like The Holdovers, which we still think is is a highly ranked movie in terms of best picture at the Oscars, is not getting in because it's really only three people in the movie. Um, so, you know, that that has to be considered. With that being said, I do think that, like I was alluding to a moment ago, I think that The Color Purple... I think it's going to get nominated. I do think it's going to get nominated for Best Picture. Um, it's an obvious choice, I think, for an ensemble award because it has there's there's so many people in the movie. I mean, it's a musical, right? Um, and everybody's doing a little bit extra because they also have to sing and dance. Um, but uh, I just think this movie is just it's it's too big of a movie. It's too you know Oscar Beatty of a movie, if you will. Um, and I think the Golden Globes issue was more of an issue of people having not seen it possibly when the those nominations were being voted on. That's um, generous of you. <laughs> yeah, I know. It. We're we're always assuming a lot that people watch the movies uh, at these in these awards voting bodies, but um, I, I think I think it's going to get in there. I, I do. I, I think that this was the sign that it needed um to to get back in the race and it's not in the race to be clear it's not you know for the race for a nomination anything. race for yeah. a nomination yes certainly yeah. um but other than that i don't i don't know that i read much into it except this just seems like it's going to be another win for for oppenheimer so yeah why don't we go ahead and switch gears and, and talk straight about the pgas because i think this dovetails nicely in the conversation we were just having about best picture the PGA is often sort of heralded as a great predictor for the Oscars, specifically getting many of the Best Picture nominees correct in its um, award for outstanding production of a theatrical motion picture. The 10 nominees that the PGA's put forward did not include The Color Purple and instead were American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, past lives, poor things, and the zone of interest. So to just for to follow up on the conversation you were just having, Scott, this is a much more internationally um, tinged uh, cohort of movies, which I do think better aligns with the Oscars, typically speaking. And I'm curious if you think The Color Purple could take out something like past lives or the zone of interest, which I think maybe are the two most at risk of falling off this list, if I had to just sort of fire from the hip and say that, do you think that that that's the direction they would go that if this is not the list of 10 films and the color purple is going to come in, that it'll be at the expense of one of those, eight, you know, the two A24 movies that are on the list? Yeah, I mean, I think the zone of interest would be the one that would would fall by the wayside for me. I mean, I understand they all get screeners of these movies, but people haven't seen the zone of interest like the zone of interest does not exist in the mind of a lot of you know moviegoers right now um, yeah but the oscar, the oscar voters are not like not the moviegoers that you're talking sure about. yeah i'm gonna i was gonna say maybe that doesn't really matter for oscar voting but um when it all comes down to it i just think that 
an international A24 movie about concentration camps with no movie stars in it versus a huge flashy literary adaptation musical with, you know, many famous actors, big musical numbers, you know, mm-hmm. all of the glitz and glamour, like a, a proper, you know, blockbuster movie, if you will, in a different era, at least. Um, I think that the answer is is clear of what the Academy is going to go with, in my mind. Yes, I, I, I they have, you know, steered towards more international territory in recent years but i think that yeah. you know anatomy of a fall is going to be the the international film that gets the sort of drive my car or parasite nomination um whereas mm-hmm. you know uh, the zone of interest i i don't think it it will and i mean Past i don't Lives think yeah is i mean to really be fair the zone of interest is a, is, a, is a british film and and, and yeah. they might well reward it in best international feature because anatomy of fall as we discussed many times is not competing in that category and mm-hmm. to your point maybe they say you know we did our work we gave it to the zone of interest and in international feature we don't need to consider it in other categories that could be the logic that is used and i could definitely see an argument for that and if that's the case maybe it's the color purple does may december have a chance of sneaking in out just to bring them back up again because they had so much heat in the early running, maybe because of Charles Milton, because of the script from Todd Haynes, but or sorry, Sammy Birch, not Todd Haynes. Um, do you think that the color purple would come in over May, December based on the way things are trending right now? It sounds like yes, but yes, it does. Yeah. It is. It is competing though. Yeah, I, I think it's competing, but I, I think at this point, May, December is a performance movie i think if it's going to get nominated somewhere it's in performance categories whereas i think the color purple can you know hit in all of the all of the categories above and below the line yeah it's 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 a bit of a mixed bag i i tend to see what you're saying and i think that because the zone of interest is gonna like could potentially be recognized in that international feature i could see them maybe going that direction in the in the best picture category all right dga scott let's talk that this will be this will be quick the five nominees Christopher Nolan, Greta Gerwig, Alexander Payne, Martin Scorsese, Yorgos Lanthimos. No Bradley Cooper, maybe most notably Alexander Payne getting a nomination over Bradley Cooper and Jonathan Glazer. We were just talking about the zone of interest. I think he was another name that was sort of right on the outside looking in just because of the I mean, you haven't seen the zone of interest yet, Scott, but it is quite a director's film. I think it's fair to say there's a lot of um, special sauce in the film, so to speak, that is in the craft of the movie, but any thoughts here on these five nominees? I think it's mostly chalk. Alexander Payne, certainly someone who was in the conversation for best director. Any, any names not getting included Bradley Cooper would be probably the most notable, but any other reactions from you? Not, not really. I mean, yeah, it is notable that Bradley Cooper was excluded, but I mean, this, this race is Christopher Nolan, you know, far in the lead, I think with, Martin Scorsese and Greta Gerwig, like, yeah, yeah, maybe in a in a tier behind them. And then nobody else really matters, I think, in terms of, um, you know, yeah, the ultimate ultimately who's going to win. It really is just a, a matter of who's going to get the nomination. Um, I can't really be bothered to care too much, I guess, about whether it's Alexander Payne or uh, or Bradley, Bradley Cooper. Cooper. 
I don't, neither one of them did a, a particularly exceptional job directing their respective movie, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that it's, I mean, this is even more so than any other category, maybe with the exception of supporting an actor. Like, I think this, this, this award is like as locked up as Dave Andrew and Randolph in supporting actress. Like, I think it's like no one's going to win it. He may not win Best Picture. Like, that, like Oppenheimer may not sweep the way people are talking about it might sweep, but I just feel like, they're gonna they're gonna give him director. It it just feels that way. Things could change over the next couple months. Yeah. Uh, they certainly could, especially if he doesn't win the DGA. We're gonna be feeling very differently if he doesn't win the DG the DGA. But right now, it just sort of feels like even if Oppenheimer were to fall short of Best Picture to the holdovers or two poor things or whatever, Nolan probably will get Best Director. It feels like it's time. I mean, I wasn't, I was 11 years old when the whole Scorsese Oscar happened. So I can't say with what it felt like at that time, but it, I feel like it, it probably it felt, felt like victory. How <laughs> yeah, it no, feels sure. right now. Yeah. Yeah. Look, Departed. Good picture. Uh, Critics' Choice Awards, Scott. Moving away from our nominations, let's see some actual results. I think safe to say, dovetailing off of the whole Christopher Nolan uh, and definitely winning Best Director. Um, conversation we were just having Oppenheimer won pretty big at the critics choice awards. I believe I didn't go in and count all of the, all of the categories, but I believe Oppenheimer ended up taking home eight awards. Barbie took home six, the holdovers three across the night. Notably per the conversations we were just having, Christopher Nolan did win for Oppenheimer and best director. Uh, Oppenheimer did win Best Picture as well. It's when we get into um, the acting categories, those lead acting categories that we were talking about a little bit ago with the SAGs, where things get a little bit more interesting. Below that, in the supporting actress, supporting actress conversation, Robert Downey Jr., Dave Joy Randolph, kind of the chalk right now, who you'd expect to be winning the awards. But let's talk about Best Actor and Best Actress, because that's where the conversation sits. We talked last week at the Golden Globe Awards how it would come down to the two winners that we saw, Paul Giamatti and Killian Murphy, going head to head. In this instance, Paul Giamatti does win the award over Killian Murphy. Now, I think it's important to note that critics are not the Oscars, right? It's a completely different body of people. It may, may very well go a different direction, but I'd love to get your reaction on Giamatti sort of taking the first head to head against Killian Murphy in the awards race. Yeah, I mean, it, it is important context to add that it's the critics, and ultimately, I think the the SAG award is going to be the the biggest, um, you know, determiner. Bellwether. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I do wonder, Scott. I do wonder if things might be trending towards Paul Giamatti's way. Um, if he keeps feels... tweeting photos of him at, at In and Out, I think he's going to win. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, it just seems like everybody likes this guy, right? Everybody likes Paul Giamatti. And, you know, he has been around a while. He has been one of those guys that he doesn't have as many nominations as you you think he would. I mean, he only has one Oscar nomination for Cinderella Man. Um, How many does Killian have? Well, but he's not that type of guy is what I'm saying. Like he's Killian Murphy has played, you know, small supporting roles in a lot of stuff. Um, and only probably in, in more recent years has has leveled up a little bit. But Paul Giamatti has been around for a long time. He seems beloved by 
certainly by moviegoers, certainly by his contemporaries. Um, you know, uh, Killian Murphy obviously was in many ways just like the face of movies in 2023 because of Oppenheimer and uh, how well it did and how memeable he became as a result of that. And there was also a period where every woman seemed to be thirsting over Killian Murphy. Um, but um, do do the Oscar voters go for the warm and fuzzy pick of Paul Giamatti? Um, I could see them doing it. But at the same time, you know, they haven't always done that, right? Glenn Close would have been the warm and fuzzy pick. Sylvester Stallone would have been the warm and fuzzy pick. They didn't choose to go that way. They went um, with a different performance in those particular years. Um, so uh, personally, if I had to pick today, I think I'd put my money on Paul Giamatti. But that certainly could change. And, you know, the SAG Award, again, I think it's going to be the one to watch. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the last few years, right? Brendan Fraser, Will Smith, Anthony Hopkins. Like, mm -hmm. Well, they I, didn't pick Chadwick Boseman, which would have been the ultimate. That know? would have been a warm and fuzzy pick, but it's telling you the kind of actor they're rewarding, which maybe isn't always the case on the other side yeah. with, with, the, with the in the actress category, although last year may be an exception. But it, it does seem like it's a lot harder to win an Oscar in the position that Killian's in versus the position that Giamatti's in. Like, I know there's only like 10 years of difference of age between them, but Killian, to your point, does seem like someone who is a more of a newcomer, maybe because he spent a good number of years working in TV doing Peaky Blinders. So he was sort of, not that he wasn't doing movies, of course he was, but he was off doing, you know, TV work, you know, the kind of work that's not being awarded at, specifically at the you know the academy awards and doing fewer movies like yes he did he's done a ton of christopher nolan movies over the years yes he was in you know a quiet place part two and you know i'm trying to think of this other stuff that he's been in recently like he's not been around that much in movies in the last handful of years in a way that you know is visible to the voting body now paul giamatti it's not like he's cranking out, you know, five movies a year or whatever, like five awards contenders a year. But to your point, like he's been very much, you know, in those conversations over the decades. And to your point, Killian hasn't. So I'm curious how this shakes out. I do agree that it feels like it's trending toward Giamatti, especially because I feel like the Oscars has strayed away from just like over celebrating one specific movie. And it does look like Oppenheimer could could like it could be like mm -hmm. if they wanted to, they could very feasibly give Oppenheimer like eight awards, eight plus awards on on the night, especially when you factor in the fact that, you know, they have strong contenders in, in several of the acting categories. And when you factor that in with the below the line director, best picture, it adds up really quickly. And it seems like, again, maybe everything everywhere all at once. I don't remember. I don't actually remember the number of awards it won last year. I think it won less than five. But like even the fact that it won that many, right? Like it was kind of not a surprise, but interesting that it did no because it got best picture three performances director it, it won seven you're right it won seven it won seven awards i just i just looked it up mm. so scratch all that so you know everything i think i think that's the exception I mean, I mean to say that like it really feels like it's hard to win a bunch of awards at the oscars more so than 20 years ago when you have lord of the rings return of the king winning like 11 oscars or whatever it was right 
So yeah, it, it seems like that's less feasible these days. Maybe last year was this weird exception. I shouldn't say weird. It was just this exception to the rule. And maybe they're not going to go that direction with Oppenheimer. I mean, they have the ability to, but like Dune won the most awards at the, at, in 2021, like back for the movies of 2021 with six, but like almost all of those were below the line. Right. Like, yes, Denny, um, like, did they even win one above the line? I don't even think so. I think they all were below the line. Dune? Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. So it, when, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I think that Kelly and Murphy, Maybe turning downwards with this, but again, the SAG is going to be more informative. On the other side, we spent a long time talking about it, longer than I thought we would. Maybe even more interesting to see on the other side where Emma Stone defeats Lily Gladstone. Maybe they just liked that her name, which the Stone was a, was more concise in Emma Stone's name as as opposed to Gladstone on the other side. Scott's shaking his head, which is probably deserved for that joke. But I thought Killers was the critics' movie. Scott, I'm a little confused. I thought I thought Killers of the Flower Moon was the critics' film. So how is Lily Gladstone losing to Emma Stone in this category at the Critics' Choice Awards? Yeah, I'm surprised about it myself. I still think I would go towards Lily Gladstone in the long run. Uh, again, one we're going to have to watch at the SAG Awards. But, um, yeah. you know, who are the critics that are voting on this, right? Is it <laughs> all film critics? Is it, you know, the Rotten Tomatoes? I did, yeah, I, my ballot got lost in the mail, Scott. Unfortunate. Yeah. I, yeah. I I do wonder, like, is that you know, is this like the people who are really celebrating Killers of the Flower Moon? To your point, because I think that's a certain subset of film critics, or is it another subset of film critics, which you know maybe have some some different taste, shall we say? Um, I, I I don't know. Um, it, 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 I would I would still be surprised if Emma Stone pulls this out because I think. I just, I think it would be wild if Killers of the Flower Moon got nothing. And uh, I think that Lily Gladstone is still very much at the center of the conversation and uh, gave a great speech to the Golden Globes. You know, she has a lot going for her still. It, it's it's an interesting wrinkle for yeah, sure. But um, I'm really going to be curious about how the SAG Award comes out on this one. Yeah. It was kind of strange to me. I, I know this is a different cohort of critics than maybe we're we're reading because this is mostly television and radio critics, um, where well, that's the medium in which their their journalism and their reviews took place. So podcasters, things like that. They and their memberships like six hundred, seven hundred. This is not your print journalist uh, yeah. critics, which are the ones that maybe we think about and talk about the most. But it was an interesting wrinkle to say the least. Fun. Little things to stream through here. We don't have to talk about these. Dominic Sessa winning Best Young Actor. Uh, the other sort of people who I guess were even in contention for this were people like Ariana Greenblatt from Barbie, uh, Milo Machado Grenier from Anatomy of Fall, who would have been maybe, you know, he would have been sort of the one and two with Dominic Sessa for me that were sort of competing for this. Uh, Abby Ryder Fortson from Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and Cal Lane from Wonka. Um, and then Madeline Una Voiles, who plays Alfie in The Creator. Uh, if, you, if that's a movie you remember, Scott, I don't know. But interesting. That did come fun, out. Yeah. Fun, little, fun little award there. Cord Jefferson won for Best Adapted Screenplay uh, for American Fiction. Uh, Barbie, so Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach won an original screenplay. It will not be competing in that category at the Oscars, though. 
it will be an adapted screenplay. So maybe more hope for Sammy Birch, Bradley Cooper, David Hemmingson, Slane Song, who knows. Um, cinematography, Oppenheimer, editing Oppenheimer, a lot of the below the line stuff going to Oppenheimer. Barbie did beat out poor things in production design and costume design, which I think is notable. I expect those two to really go head to head there. And then Ludwig Gorenson winning score again. So a lot of the card lining up for Ludwig Gorenson to win best score at the Oscars. Thought it was hilarious just really quickly as uh, before we get to my last point, Scott, that Oppenheimer won best visual effects, not even eligible for visual effects at the Oscars which I thought was uh, not even on the long list, I should say. I mean, of course, it was eligible. It wasn't on the it wasn't even on the long list of movies. It, for... it just shows you how meaningless all this stuff really is when it's all said and done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you brag about your movie having mostly practical effects, uh, yeah. I guess the Oscars get big mad at you. I have to chop you down a bit. But Scott, the last thing I, I did want to mention here, and we don't have to spend too long talking about this, but Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse did beat out the boy and the heron in best animated feature at the Critics' Choice Awards. Any thoughts there? I think we were, we did acknowledge that that competition would still be existing at the Oscars, especially given the fact that Into the Spider-Verse won Best Animated Feature at the Oscars uh, when it came out uh, in 2018, so the 2019 awards. It feels like I, w- I would still be surprised if The Boy and the Heron did not win, given Miyazaki. It's, you know, it's his final movie, air quotes again. Who knows if it will be his final movie, but his final movie, it's a great work. Across the Spider-Verse, as amazing as I think that the film is and as it was praised when it came out, it's still sort of an it, it is leading into a final film. It feels very Dune, very Lord of the Rings. Like, are you really going to award the second film in a trilogy uh, with this title? Maybe they will. Maybe they will. And I would be fine with that. It's a really phenomenal film. One of the best, one of the absolute best movies of last year. But do we think Boy in the Heron is still going to come out on top? I don't know, Scott. I, I do kind of think maybe I'm I'm shifting towards thinking Spider-Verse is going to take this. Okay. Um, I think the Globe's more international voting body certainly helped out The Boy and the Heron. I just, I mean, The Boy and the Heron is a weird movie. Like, it is. Yeah, like, it is. It's more and, of a critic's But the thing is, it's more of a critic's film, that I would think. Like, it's more, again, but, this well, is the but television. Well, is it TV radio. and radio critic film? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, we're getting yeah. into the really minute distinctions here. But, I, I mean, I, you know, we would like to think that Miyazaki is last film, whatever, that means something. But The Wind Rises, I mean, did The Wind Rises even get nominated for Best Animated Feature? I'm not even sure that it did. It certainly didn't win. So that didn't mean anything really 10 years ago when that movie came it was, out. It was so. nominated. It was def- it was nominated for Best It was nominated. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, it didn't really mean anything 10 years ago when that movie came out. Yeah, it lost, mean, it lost a Frozen. It lost a Frozen. In a year, it absolutely could have won because its competition was Despicable Me to The Croods, Ernest and, and, Cel- and Celestine, and Frozen. <laughs> and it can't beat that crop of movies. I'm like, I wish I, you had I don't, told me that. I don't yeah. mind. Fro- I really don't mind Frozen that much. But, I mean, that's disgraceful <laughs> that's so disgraceful my point is though the the boy in the heron is a weird movie i feel like it it could click less for oscar voters than for the hollywood foreign press and into the spider-verse won an oscar so they already have that going for them at the same time and hear me out last year guillermo del toro's pinocchio won okay but it's a it's a much loved story and a much loved figure i mean guillermo del toro is one of like the most 
beloved people among like the academy so i think that's more sure. about him maybe than it is the movie that's fair whereas me i do think miyazaki doesn't give a single crap about the academy awards and you know i don't know if they'll factor that in or not but he's not even going to show up if he wins so i mean i mean i don't mean to be too overly serious about it but i think someone of his age and his and my understanding of his health like sit tight keep working on the next That's movie fine. but if it was 20 years ago he wouldn't have showed up either like i mean he literally did show he up when he won for spirited away he gave oh, okay well yeah. my my mistake but anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't care about the oscars as opposed to somebody he's not showing up at award shows as opposed to somebody like guillermo del toro who's always there who's always like a positive presence at these things yeah i mean the best you could hope for for that movie showing up would be like toshia suzuki being there to to accept the, the award which yeah. i mean that's fine nothing wrong with that he was at like for example he, i think he was at toronto for the films you know well, joe Hisaishi was at the golden globes as well and uh Karen that's because he was that's because he was nominated that's because he was nominated yeah, yeah. but he could yeah. be nominated for the oscar as well so that's true that's a good point i mean look more Hisaishi. let's go nothing wrong with that true all right scott i think that should do it for two episode 261 of some like it scott where can people find you on socials at scarvey dent on all platforms and at Shelton 2013 for me over on Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialized. Don't forget to check out our podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash pods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. But if not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that, so we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about the Book of Clarence. We'll be back next week with the discussion of Hirokazu Koreeda's latest film, Monster. We hope you'll join us for that. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.